Welcome to O'Reilly Bots. I'm John Bruner, and I'm joined by Pete Skomarok. This is episode four of O'Reilly's new pop-up podcast series on chatbots and conversational interfaces. These are bits of software that use artificial intelligence to converse in human terms, and they promise to bring AI and computing in general into all sorts of places where they haven't been before. One way to bring bots into new environments is through voice, using a microphone to take input from the user. This is what you see with popular chatbots like Apple's Siri that's on the iPhone, or Amazon's Echo, which uh, Pete and I put through its paces in the last episode. Our guest today designs voice user interfaces. Before we get to that, I want to remind you that O'Reilly Bot Day is coming up. It's October 19th in San Francisco. This is a one-day program about chatbots and conversational interfaces that's for anyone who's working on bots, whether you're developing bots, designing bots, or just working to come up with a bot strategy for your company, this is an essential event. Speakers include amazing people like Lily Cheng from Microsoft, Amir Shavat from Slack, and Andy Morrow from Automat, and, of course, today's guest. For more information on O'Reilly Bot Day, visit O'Reilly.com slash bots. Our guest today is Kathy Pearl, who, in addition to speaking at Bot Day, is also Director of UX at Sensely, which is a startup that has a virtual nurse called Molly who helps people with their healthcare concerns. She is an authority on VUIs, who is also the author of the forthcoming Designing Voice User Interfaces from O'Reilly. Hi, Kathy. Good to have you on. Hi there. So how does one become a voice designer? Um, that is a very interesting question. Um, I got into voice design back in the late 90s in 1999 when I saw a job advertisement for Nuance Communications, which was one of the, the leaders uh, in the early days of IVRs, which are the phone systems you call mm -hmm. to um, talk to a computer that everybody likes to hate on. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really have a background in, in voice user interface design at the time, as most people um, didn't, but my background was more in cognitive science which deals with things like linguistics and psychology and um, HCI. And a, a combination of a lot of those things is a great preparation for voice user interface design because a lot of it has to do, of course, with just general uh, user experience and best design practices. But it also has to do a lot with understanding how do people actually speak? Mm -hmm. Because we want to handle how people actually speak, not how we want them to speak. It seems like, uh, you know, kind of a difficult... Uh, type of design because the the medium you're working with can't convey quite as much information as a as a visual medium, right? Right. So that's an interesting problem because if you have a visual list in front of you, you can take your time, you can sort through a menu, you can you can look at each examine each example. But if you're trying to give someone a list of menu items over the phone or through Amazon Echo or something like that, where there's no visual component you can only give people smaller chunks. And so you have to come up with other strategies to assist people in understanding what they can do with your interface. Hmm. So uh, what what do you think of the trend of uh, chatbots right now? So voice, having, being someone who's worked for years in voice interface, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between these two, but also some differences. Yeah, I think, so it's interesting to me because 
there is a lot of hype right now for conversational interfaces, and which excites me a lot because I think conversational interfaces are are great and are going to be uh, a great part of our future. But I don't actually find that many conversational interfaces out there. Um, because, for example, if I come up to you and say, how are you? And you say, fine. And then we walk away. Did we have a conversation? <laughs> I don't really think we did. And a lot of chatbots are in that state right now where they're sort of one-offs. You mm -hmm. need to do something. I want to tell Alexa, turn on the lights or play a song. Or I want to ask um, Siri to search for something. And you ask that and the transaction is over and you go about your business. And to me, that's not really conversational design. Hmm. So, so it's like transactional bots versus dialogue bots? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think there is a great place for the the one-off kind of scenario. I, I love my Amazon Echo, um, and I think it's extremely useful, and bots can do a lot. But um, I think it's a separate thing to think about what would a real conversational bot uh, or VUI look like, and what could we do with that that's that's maybe a little bit different? Uh, uh, sort of what, what do you have in mind? Something that, that uh, maybe is an agent that knows something about you and continues to learn about you as you go, rather than just kind of ducking in for individual transactions? Definitely. I think there's two ways to make something conversational. One is to, as you say, remember things about you, maybe about past transactions. Another thing is just to remember the last thing you said to it. Um, hmm. There is an example uh, I like to use when I'm testing out virtual assistants where I might start with the question, you know, who's the 16th president of the United States? And they tell me that. And then I say, well, where was he born? Uh -huh. And a good one, like Google can do now, is it remembers what he means and uh -huh. says, oh, you know, in Kentucky or whatever. And the not so advanced ones have no idea what I said and just send it as a search result. So even in the, the single conversation you're having without remembering what happened the day before or the week before, just remember what did I say one turn ago would be really uh, powerful. Huh. It was remarkably recently that Google introduced that um, that intelligence, right? I, that was like 2013 or 2014? Yeah. And the funny thing is, as I've been uh, working on my my book about voice user interfaces, I, I found an example with Google where I said, um, what's the most expensive dog in the world? And it said something like Tibetan Mastiff. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, where can I get one? And what it did when I was starting to write my book was that it replaced it in the search result with dog and it searched for uh, where can I find a dog. Yeah. And I wanted to get a screen grab of that. So about a couple months later, I went back to that example. And now it actually works correctly where it uses huh. Tibetan Mastiff and gives me a result for that. So they're improving you know, as we're speaking right now, I'm sure somebody at Google is improving their their uh, interface. Right, right. That's something we talk about occasionally on this um, on this program is the challenge of conveying improvement in a chat context and especially a voice context where there's that the kind of um, sparse information that you mentioned earlier. I think that a lot of a lot of bot developers have this problem where it's difficult to convey what the affordances of the of the system are. You know, other than saying, you can ask me to tell a joke, you can ask me to turn on the lights, whatever, which gets sort of tedious. And so people kind of poke around and they discover things that work and they discover other things that don't work. And I feel like if they discover something that doesn't work, they're not going to try it again later, right? Yeah. And I think it's honestly one of the biggest problems we have with things like our virtual assistants and Amazon Echo, because Siri, for example, will say, how may I help you? And that gives the user the idea that they can say anything they want, and they really can't. Mm -hmm. And it's a very difficult problem. How do you let people know the things that you can say that will work very successfully, but how do you let people know? And I think a lot of that has to do with 
I mean, in any design business, you want to be able to handle failure cases, but it's Mm -hmm. especially important in voice user interfaces because there will be failures and you don't want to leave people hanging. When When they fail in their task, you want to help them somehow and let them get back on track and let them be successful despite the failures. So Kathy, when you mentioned failure modes, it makes me wonder which bots right now have the best failure modes. Do you have any opinion on that? (laughs) Um, I don't know that I've seen any super strong candidates in that. Um, It is a difficult problem. I think that one thing that I think about is if I'm designing a VUI for a mobile app, you really can take advantage of the visual on there. So in an IVR, if the user fails, you have to fall back with, okay, well, this is what you can say and, and, and say that out loud. But with something like um, Google or Siri or Cortana, when there is a failure, they give you some hints about things you can say. So Siri might have a visual list um, that floats up on the screen, not really a menu, but just sort of here's some stuff you can say and and give some ideas. Another uh, practice I've seen sometimes is if you do something and you say take several steps, there might be a hint that says, by the way, you could uh, have said, you know, such and such mm-hmm. um, up front. So figuring out where to apply those is a bit tricky because you don't want to annoy users with too many you know, instructions. Maybe they like the way they did it already, but finding those points um, and helping out users for the next time uh, can, can be useful. On the podcast last week, Pete and I recorded a bunch of interactions with the Amazon Echo, and mm-hmm. um, it has a couple of different failure modes. There's one where it says, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. And then there's another one where it just kind of goes boodoop and, and turns itself off. Yes. And Amazon Echo um, is, is an interesting one because, as, as we've said, there's no real visual component. I mean, you do have some feedback on your phone, but most people aren't using it in that mode. Yeah. And it does the boodoop versus the, I didn't understand the question. If it thinks you asked something like a why or a how, then huh. it might say, I didn't understand the answer to your question. If it really has no idea, then it kind of does the boodoop. And actually... In terms of feedback, I think these are pretty effective because when it does the little sound, you know that it just did not get you at all. And people very naturally, they don't need to be trained to repeat themselves. One of Mm -hmm. the methods we used at my previous company, which was called Volio, we had an interactive iPad app where it was a video of a real person speaking and then you would take a turn and speak back. And it was sort of like a choose your own adventure where you'd have a conversation. Mm. And we found that if so let's say the video asked you a question and you replied and it the system didn't recognize you rather than like an ivr kind of fallback where it said i'm sorry i didn't get you the system just said nothing instead the Mm. video actor just continued to look at you expectantly Mm -hmm. and we found in testing that people just automatically repeated themselves and 80 percent of the time they would move on successfully and they wouldn't even know that there was an error i'd ask them later well what did you think when that error happened and they'd be like what are you talking about because we were mimicking a very natural human thing if i say something you don't understand me you might just look at me and I'd repeat myself. So we try to take advantage of these already known human conventions in conversation. That totally makes sense. So the, the I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question is, is something that you would say um, if someone was clearly asking you a sensible question and you just kind of like needed it repeated and, and a blank stare is what you would give if you weren't even sure that someone was like talking to you at all. <laughs> right. And, and even, um, you could even do the blank stare, even if you knew that they were probably asking you a question and, and still people would just typically naturally repeat themselves. Yeah. Are, are there any um, conventions of human conversation that you see a lot of people trying to apply to voice bots, but that just don't translate? Hmm. 
Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, How about uh, ordering pizza is one that we've talked about before. Mm. <laughs> what, do, yeah. what do you think about that? That I don't know if you have you seen those examples. Yeah, I I have several ones I I, I think about that. Um, I think I was using the IBM chatbot, which is just of course a prototype. But I was using the IBM chatbot, and it said, you know, what what ingredients do you want? And I said, uh, or I typed. Uh, pepperoni, olives, and no mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And it said, okay, pepper pepperoni, olives, and mushroom pizza, you know, coming up. <laughs> and it's a reminder that um, you can't just grab keywords out of there. You have to think about negation. And did somebody say, I don't want this or no to that um, and follow up on that. And another pizza example, I was just reading an article where the Domino's CEO was talking about their, their pizza ordering uh, VUI. And he was lamenting the fact that, oh, we'd really like people to, to order pizza in a logical, linear way, but they just don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just reminds me that you really have to design for how people do talk, not how you wish they would talk. And that's a, that's a key in my mind to, to conversational design. It makes me think of um, ordering at, at Starbucks. Uh, when, you, when you give the order to the cashier, you can specify your drink in... Um, you know, in any configuration, but then in calling out the order to the barista, the cashier reorganizes your order of keywords into like the standard Starbucks order. So if you walk up and say, um, could I have to go, uh, an iced venti latte, the cashier will say like, sure. And then he'll turn over his shoulder and say one venti iced latte to go. Right. And and reorder these words into kind of like the, the, the accepted Starbucks format. Yeah, exactly. And and that's something that, um, you know, back to this Domino's pizza ordering up, they were also saying, well, sometimes people will say, I want to order a large pepperoni pizza, the end, and it's all done. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they say, I want to order a pizza and you have to, you know, get the rest of the details, which, I, there, you know, there's there's been some examples out there, like with Viv and, and some of these new ones where or Hound, where they show off how you can say like a three part, you know, find me the nearest cafe within one mile that has Wi-Fi on Sundays. And everyone's mm -hmm. like, wow, that's incredible. But people don't usually talk that way. If I call a customer service agent, I'm going to say, I have a problem. They say, well, what is your problem? I say, well, it's with my bill. There's a charge on it. Well, what is the charge? And we have a back and forth. People want to give a narrative. They want to tell this story about, well, this is the problem I'm having. Here are the details. And they don't generally just spit everything out first go. Mm -hmm. So you have to adapt to both cases. Sometimes people will say things up front. Sometimes they won't. And your system should be able to handle both. Going even higher level on on VUIs, a lot of people who are interested in them um, are really just struggling, you know, first of all, with whether a voice interface is an appropriate way to handle uh, whatever it is that they're working on. Having had a lot of experience with with VUIs over a while now, um, are, are there any kind of usage patterns that you see people trying to, to squeeze into a VUI that don't make sense for a VUI? Yeah, I'm thinking about um, Dan Grover's article on Medium where he was talking about conversational interfaces and when they're appropriate and when they're not. And again, pizza comes into play. Um, and I think with this trend towards, oh, let's make everything conversational, let's make everything a chatbot, sometimes typing or speaking just takes longer than an app where you press buttons. Um, mm -hmm. So there's cases there where an app will be perfectly suitable for your task, um, but people want to attach voice or text to it. And um, it's not always appropriate. Um, another case, of course, is privacy. Um, you know, I work on healthcare apps. And 
if you're at home and you want to talk about, I have this symptom, can you can you help me with that? Then speaking to your phone is just fine. But if I'm mm-hmm. on the train going to work, I don't want to speak my symptoms out loud. Um, and so you have to think about context and where is someone when they're going to be using your app and, and is it appropriate or not? Hmm. Yeah, a great example of that uh, that came up in the Alexa segment was uh, one of the Alexa skills you could install was uh, generate me a password app, right? <laughs> and it would speak it out loud to you so you could write it down, I guess, and enter it. That's interesting um, because, you know, right now the use case for Alexa is at home for, for most people. Mm-hmm. I was hearing someone talking about if we still had answering machines, wouldn't it be funny to prank your friend by calling them and saying, Alexa, on your recording message and ordering some product that they don't want? <laughs> so that, I mean, to me, that's a really interesting use case because if I know my friend has an Alexa and I walk into their house, I can start doing all kinds of stuff. I could say, Alexa, what's my bank balance or you know mm-hmm. whatever skill they have installed. So I think over time, we're going to see some considerations like that that we haven't really had to account for yet. Yeah, Alexa and August lock, uh, which is the smart lock, um, a- apparently went through kind of a, a negotiation of how an Alexa August lock might work and concluded that Alexa should never be able to control this smart lock mm. because you would never want to create a situation where someone could like shout through an open window, Alexa, open the door. <laughs> and well, I, I think it's trickier <laughs> than that. I think they allow Alexa to lock your door, but not to unlock it. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes hmm. sense. Uh, but so even it, that stuff gets pretty complex pretty quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. And even I know at our house, this isn't a security thing, but I have an eight-year-old and we have Alexa arguments where we're trying to listen to different music and, you know, it's Alexa, do this. No, Alexa, do that. And uh, sometimes I wish I could block it down so it only understood me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kathy, for someone who, you know, maybe has a background in web UX, uh, conventional interfaces, who is interested in beginning to at least understand or maybe begin to to sort of design some conversational interfaces, are, are there any kind of principles that do translate and principles that don't from conventional UI to, to VUI? Yeah, so I think in terms of things that do translate, you know, I think best design practices go across any type of design, whether it's GUI or voice or, you know, web design, where you always want to look at what is the task user trying to, to accomplish, you know, um, understand their needs, design for that, iterate, prototype, uh, test, all those kinds of things. In terms of some of the differences, I think GUI is a discrete mechanism. You know, you know if somebody pressed your the yes button or the no button. I mean, maybe they did it on accident, but you know what they pressed. And they, there's only a, a subset of, of options, a finite set of options. When somebody speaks, um, and even with text, they can maybe type anything they want, but you know what they typed. With speech, they, someone says something and we have a theory about what they said. Now it's getting more and more accurate, but nonetheless, it's still a bit of a theory. And we have to know that there's such a wide range of, of the things that people could say. There's a wide range of things that were recognized. And you have to spend a lot of time up front thinking about the best way to craft your prompt, that is, the mm-hmm. thing you say to somebody to elicit input. You want to be as clear as possible. Um, and then when you get that input, you'll find over time, you have to collect a lot of data because people say things in different ways. 
And you have to just make sure you build in the time to look at those responses, add them to what you're going to handle and things like that. So you have to build in some time for those types of design tasks and testing tasks. Hmm. Is there a rule of thumb for uh, how long you should expect a user to sort of flounder around and discover the features of the of, of the interface in voice versus in a you know conventional GUI? To me, there's sort of two types of, of GUI systems. There's the virtual assistant type thing with an Amazon Echo or Google Siri Cortana, where I think it's fairly difficult to uh, educate the users and, and really give them a comprehensive list of all the things they can say. On the other hand, on a, on a more directed system, for example, at Sensely, we have um, a daily check-in where somebody has to take their blood pressure and their weight. Mm -hmm. And Molly, the avatar, is asking them questions and giving them instructions. And in that case, we don't find it difficult to train users. Um, we have a lot of older users, for example, who aren't that tech savvy, but they don't find it difficult to know what to do when when, Holly, when Molly says, uh, how are you doing? They, they give her a response and then she'll say, please put on your blood pressure cuff and they'll do that. And in that kind of directed way, it's it's not so difficult to for people to know, you know, what can I do here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So conversational interfaces, uh, one example that comes to mind, we've mentioned a few times before, is uh, Tay, which was the mm -hmm. Twitter, uh, the bot on Twitter uh, that people trained to be really evil and bad uh, <laughs> through uh, <laughs> a series of Twitter conversations. And so that feels like a case where a bot in a group setting uh, could go haywire because people can act badly around it. Right. You know, I was talking to uh, one of the writers um, for Cortana, you know, they have a whole team of writers, and she was talking about how they made some deliberate design decisions for the people who do choose to abuse Cortana and say, you know, vulgar things. They, they made a very conscious choice about, well, how do we want to handle that? Um, you know, they decided they didn't want to ignore it and they didn't want to play into it. So they just kind of have a philosophy of shutting it down. And I think that if you are going to build something like a Tay where you're going to allow it to learn, you can do some things, I think, in order to say there are certain topics that we're not going to put those into our learning algorithm. You know, we're going to um, be aware of, of tendencies people have because we know a lot about what, what people say to mess with these bots and things like that. So I think you could take some proactive steps. Obviously, you can't think of everything, but you could take some proactive steps, I think, to rein in which things are you going to allow to teach your bot and which things are you not going to. From an AI perspective, this seems like a real, real, real challenge. Uh, so on the one hand, you were saying, okay, you want to gather data and learn what people say so that you can have your bot respond in a better way. And that feels, that's like a Google scale problem, right? Where you have millions of conversations ultimately or more. Uh, and it's hard to understand how you police that and how you avoid what what happens in something like Tay? Do you have any thoughts on how, how that's going to happen? One thing I'm, I'm thinking about is having different phases so that when you first release your bot, it's not doing external learning. What I mean by that is you're taking in lots of data, but you're not changing the bot in response to what people are saying yet. And you go through a first round because if you let it run, let's say for a couple of weeks, you'll get a lot of data about the types of things and the ways people are interacting with it. And you could sort of maybe tease out a few things like, okay, when people are saying these types of racist things, we are not going to, you know, roll those into our, our um, later version and things like that. So I, I think, I mean, this kind of applies to voice user interface design in general. You want to put it out there for a while and see what happens before you decide how am I going to change it um, and, and improve it. On kind of the related topic of... Um... Bot abuse. This is something that 
a lot of people who are developing bots are, are interested in. Um, you know, when you when you kind of open the possibility of uh, of responding in any way you want to a bot, a lot of users kind of try to try to test out the limitations of the bot by you know feeding it bad information or or you know saying terrible things to it or just kind of like seeing if they can provoke an an odd response from it. A lot of people I've spoken with have put some thought into how to you know shut down these interactions early on not because it's it's bad for the bot in some ways these aren't these aren't like sophisticated learning bots they're just kind of you know consumer interaction bots but they find that letting their bot respond in these provocative ways just kind of distracts the user and creates a relationship with the user that that they don't want as as the managers of these bots um for instance like uh, the the poncho weather bot uh that you can chat with on on facebook messenger um if you if you insult it it says something like uh hey that's not very nice and it prompts you to say like oh sorry or <laughs> i don't care and if you say i don't care i think it locks you out for for five or ten minutes before mm. you can come back oh, that's, i like that i like the uh cognitive behavior uh yeah. behaviorist uh, response yeah exactly right it's like it's almost like therapy it's like i'm, I'm sure you meant to say i'm sorry after <laughs> right <laughs> it, um, it reminds me of my daughter is just starting kindergarten and i think she's getting a lot of that kind of treatment you know time to think <laughs> about what you did <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What do you, how do you think that made her feel? Yeah, exactly. Um, bring back Eliza. Right, right. And the, I, I think uh, Siri created a kind of a precedent, though, of offering like funny responses to strange mm. input. And, and, and it's, it's very difficult to, to walk that line, right, between, uh, you know, a response that's, that's like funny or kind of sassy and, uh, and something that just, encourages your users to go off into the weeds and, and feed your bot all sorts of weird input. Definitely. And I know I've heard people have both uh, reactions to serious sort of sassy responses. Some people think it's really funny and some people think it's really irritating. Mm -hmm. And and that's, you know, Siri is just supposed to be a tool for everybody. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to, to do your persona design because you know, if you're designing for a very specific niche case, you can go a little more out there with your persona because yes, a lot of people won't like it, but you mostly care about a certain group of users. If it's an all-purpose tool like a Siri or Google Now, maybe your persona needs to be tamed down a little bit because it's supposed to be for everybody, not just certain um, certain types of users. I know yesterday, uh, my son said to Alexa, you know, you're annoying me. And she <laughs> said, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to be annoying or something like that. And, huh. um I thought that was was kind of cute. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, like, and and she didn't she didn't say no. You're annoying me. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, she could have been more more sarcastic or something, and I don't think that would have been good. As another example of where uh, it can be difficult to walk this line of injecting a little humor, uh, it's it's it reminds me a lot of uh, web search, right? So people can ask an, an extremely long tail uh, set of questions, uh, and some of those you know, could be in the case of like an emergency or something, right? And the example that comes to mind, I think Siri added, uh, they adapted Siri to handle things like, I, I feel like killing myself or my head hurts hmm. and things like that, right? So before, like, if Siri misunderstands you and then tries to give a witty response in those situations, that's a really bad user experience, right? Right. And you, I think a lot about the, the cost. It's like if you, in a particular response, if you get it right, what is the cost versus if you get it wrong? And if there's a very high cost when you get it wrong, then maybe you should rethink whether that's an appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. hmm. It might be better to just punt altogether and say, I don't understand. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think about that. This is sort of a a different topic, but in terms of things like um, confirming information, this is a really important topic for VUI design versus GUI. So again, with GUI, when they press the button, you don't usually stop and say, did you press the yes button? You know, you know, Mm -hmm. they pressed it. And in VUI systems, so if you think about IVRs, a lot of times you'd say, you know, I want to book a flight to San Francisco and say, I thought you said San Francisco. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And how do you apply those to like mobile apps or Alexa? And it's important to sometimes have different types of confirmation. So if, you know, with VUI, you get a confidence score. How confident is the speech recognition engine in what the person said? If there's a high confidence, a lot of times you can get away with something we call an implicit confirmation, which is like, mm. oh, San Francisco. Sure. Here's the weather. Okay. Versus we have a low confidence. We think they said San Francisco. We're not quite sure where you might say, I thought you said San Francisco. Is that right? And let them confirm before you go on. And again, I'm thinking about the cost. If it's like, I want to transfer a million dollars from this account to that account, you better confirm no matter how confident you are versus it's no big deal if we gave the weather for the wrong uh, city. That is also something that seems to be drawn from kind of normal human interaction, right? If you're you're talking to a banker, uh, you expect them to be almost obsequious in in how they're like confirming everything, right? Mm. Something as important as a big money transfer. Um, Ordinarily, a customer service representative would be saying things like, all right, just to confirm one more time, we have a million dollars from this account, to right? And so you kind of expect a a bot to maybe express that same care as a a human. So you mentioned persona design earlier. This is this is a new idea for um, you know for a lot of people coming from a conventional uh, UI uh, background, perhaps. What is what's the essence of persona design? So with persona design, um, especially when you have a system that speaks, and then of course if you are building on top of that something like an avatar. Um, People will naturally ascribe a personality to your system. I mean, people do it with Siri all the time where they say she's this or she's that. And because you know people are going to be ascribing personality traits to your system, you might as well sort of get ahead of that and decide beforehand, what do you want your personality traits to be in your system? Um, And how do you want to build that in in the way that they speak? Not only just um, the words they say, but if you have a voice talent, how are they going to phrase things? Again, are they going to have, you know, funny replies to errors? Are they going to be more business-like? And so you, when you're designing a system, whether it's a chatbot or a VUI, you need to think beforehand, like, what are the, what are the ways, what is the personality that this, this bot or VUI is going to have? Write that down. It doesn't have to be long, but just sort of here are the basic uh, traits. And then when you're designing your system, think, does this prompt uh, fit with that personality mm-hmm. or not? Um, I think one thing to be careful with with persona is that sometimes people can go a little overboard and they design like this 10 page dossier of, <laughs> of their their chatbot. Um, but what comes right down to it, if it's a banking app, there's only so many ways you can say, like, how much money do you want to transfer? So I think it's a great exercise that everyone should always do when designing a bot or a VUI. But um Keep it in mind with the domain. If you have an entertainment bot, sure, your persona is going to be a little more wild and interesting. But if you have a a travel bot or a banking bot, um, there's a little less wiggle room in in terms of your design. Right, right. I've noticed that the Poncho weather bot, for instance, is like full of kind of cute details. It's a a weather cat who wears a poncho and has like (laughs) kind of like little jokes about being a cat and little jokes about not enjoying the weather. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a lot of leeway because, you know, it's not it's not critical, right? It, right you don't have right. to, like, trust this uh, a great deal in order to enjoy it and, and mm-hmm. sort of well, get something. This done. is another area where uh, 
bots can backfire depending on how you frame the bot. So if you frame your bot as, uh, you know, the super intelligent uh, assistant or something, and, you know, it manages tasks for you or something, and then it's failing, and it still has that personality, and it doesn't, you know, so if, like, the, it seems like the hu- bots maybe need a little humility at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a theory of why um, cat videos are so popular on the internet, is that Cats have this incredible natural self-assurance that suggests that they will never make an error. And it's kind of a humorless self-assurance. And so when they screw up, it's it's just like incredibly funny and, and possibly sort of gratifying in a weird sort of underlying way. Whereas <laughs> dogs are very emotive and they they kind of communicate with humans on human terms and uh, and they seem a little bit more human to us and they seem more self-effacing. Mm-hmm. And so when dogs screw up, it's it's not quite as entertaining. I, I can see I can see the medium post now. Is your chat bot a dog or a cat? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, did you exactly. see the Facebook research recently where they looked at uh, cat uh, owners versus dog owners and which who has more friends and things like that? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but you reminded me of something else, which is a good VUI principle, and I think a good design principle in general, which is let the system take the blame. Like I've seen VUIs where there's a misunderstanding, and it will say like you need to say that again, you need to, you know, it basically blames the user. And mm-hmm. my design principle is that the system should always be the one that says, I'm having trouble understanding, you know, don't ask the person to talk louder, things like that. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Let the system take the blame, give the user help to be successful and um, and that kind of thing. We're starting to see a lot of different types of platform that bots can live on. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of uh, mobile assistants on your phone. Uh, there are bots that you access through a web browser. And and then the Alexa is is kind of like a, a thing off on its own, kind of a, a very different format. Um, how do you think that's affecting the way that we use and, and design for these uh, bots? I've been thinking a lot about my Amazon Echo versus, say, my Android phone with Google Now, and why do I find myself, everything I can do on my Amazon Echo, I could do on my phone by picking it up, saying, okay, Google, and giving a command. Mm-hmm. And yet there's so many things I do with my Amazon Echo that I just don't do with my phone. And I think it's about friction and the fact that I can be you know, in lots of different rooms in my house and just call out Alexa and ask something. And the recognition quality uh, is 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 good enough that most of the time she's going to understand me and do the thing I want. And somehow that's just much easier than going over, picking up my phone, unlocking it, saying, okay, Google, which may or may not be recognized, then saying my command. Um, and I think it's kind of amazing that that something that in a way is a very small difference can actually make a very big difference in terms of the user experience. Uh yeah, so that reminds me, similar to what you're saying about Alexa and Siri, I think something like that is happening in the the text chat world of uh, Facebook and Slack. So the analogy would be in Slack to install a, a bot uh, or to invoke a bot, a new bot, uh, you have to have effectively your CIO install that bot um, for your company um, versus trying a new bot on Facebook you just click on a link and you're dropped instantly into a conversation in Messenger with that bot. Um, and so I, I had this experience where there was a bot, I guess, I think it's called Card IQ, 
where it's basically like the old card munch app, which would scan business cards. And that feels like a very workplace type activity, but it was much easier to do on Facebook uh, because I, I could just click on a link and scan a card instantly in a chat conversation versus a heavy install process. It seems like friction. So is that that's basically what you're getting at, right? Is that friction is going to be a killer for a lot of these apps? For sure. And and another example, I was trying to. I, I noticed on on uh, Microsoft they had some chatbots. They said you could try out. So I wanted to try out the Spock one, and it tried to install it as a contact on my Skype, um, and I never got it to work. It was it was too difficult. Whatever the process was, I could not figure <laughs> it out. So I just abandoned it and. Yeah, exactly. If you want somebody to be able to use your your VUI, your chatbot, um, making it super easy for them to to be able to use is, is key. So an, a, another big challenge that we talk about a lot on this podcast is kind of the the degree to which the underlying technology is is prepared to make bots a reality, especially the AI when it comes to you know conversational intelligence. But with VUIs, you have this added area of, of, you know, voice recognition, which is, which is still imperfect as well, especially when the background is noisy, or maybe the microphone is low quality or something like that. How can you accommodate, you know, the possibility of being misheard or, or the possibility that, that the system can't hear you at all in a yeah, I think it's a really important consideration because even though in the last few years, speech recognition technology has improved enormously, um, and some people, you know, quote accuracy rates in the 90 percentile, 90th mm -hmm. percentile, um, it still isn't perfect and it never will be. I mean, human recognition is also not perfect. And so an important part of your design process is to realize that sometimes people will be misrecognized. It doesn't mean that your system has to fail, though. And an example that comes to mind is, let's say you have a uh, travel application where you can book hotel rooms and things like that, and you can ask questions about the facility. And let's say you ask something about the pool, like, what's the pool depth? And the recognizer returns, what's the pool death? Mm. Um, which is the kind of misrecognition I've, I've definitely seen. And that's something, you know, that might alarm your users. But in fact, under the covers, we can handle that quite well. If we anticipate and have enough data collection beforehand, we can simply map pool death to pool depth uh -huh. and handle it flawlessly without the user even realizing. But it's just something you really have to be aware of that you're going to get that type of misrecognition and you need to come up with strategies to, to handle it. On a related note, how do you handle, you know, unclear input from from the user? You understand what they said, but it's not specific enough to, to be able to figure out what it is that they really meant. Right. And there's sort of two strategies people can take, their designers can take, which is to make assumptions. And the other one is to ask follow-up questions. One of the examples I was looking at recently um, was what happens when you ask an assistant what the weather is in Springfield? Because, you know, Springfield is a, a city in every state. Uh -huh. And I asked, uh, you know, six different assistants, uh, what's the weather in Springfield? And I got like four different responses. Um, none of them actually stopped and said, which Springfield do you mean? Hmm. Every single one made an assumption about the Springfield, whether it was in Illinois. One of them used Australia. Um, <laughs> one of them didn't even tell me which one it used. It just said it's 65 degrees and I don't even know which Springfield <laughs> they meant. So I think, again, it's it's depends on the context. If I ask what's the weather in Walnut Creek, which is uh, a city in the East Bay, so it's, it's mm -hmm. close, 
I think it's great to assume that that's the one I mean. Whereas if I ask for Springfield, which is far away from me, I think it makes sense for the system to stop and say, you know, I have Springfield, Illinois, you know, mm-hmm. maybe list a few popular ones and, and stop and ask rather than just assume. So it depends on the, the context. And then hopefully remember once you've disambiguated, right, and be able to use that in the future when you ask for the, for the weather in Springfield. Exactly. And that's something we were talking about earlier, where the smarter and more conversational assistants are going to, one strategy they're going to have to employ is to learn and remember what the user has already said in the past, for sure. Yeah. One of the most frustrating experiences I think I've had is with the voice assistant in my Camry hybrid, and uh, it links to your contacts. So you can, you know, in theory, use your voice to call someone. Uh, and I think there it's haywire in my car or something. It, it like just totally gets the person wrong every time. Extremely frustrating. <laughs> And that's a case where it has the, your contact list to choose from. Um, so I, I guess a, a, a follow-up question I'd have, it, it feels like things are move, moving ahead in a very uneven way. So you've got the big guns of like Google and uh, Siri and Cortana uh, who are you know have massive amounts of data and are developing these really advanced interfaces. And then you have... Uh, like the car makers <laughs> and their built-in guidance systems, which I'd, I'd argue are, are pretty poor um, in terms of user experience. So do you think this, is this going to be like a winner take all where we're going to have these, these God voice interfaces, God bots, or, um, you know, is there, is there a chance for these other players to uh, catch up? Um, I think, of course, I'm biased because I'm at one of those uh, startups. Um, I think there's a lot of room for smaller companies, smaller groups to to get into the game and be successful. For things like virtual assistants, um, I think that's a tougher market to break into because, as you say, you know, a lot of these big companies have a lot of data and can do a lot with that. But I think for very domain-specific tasks, the smaller players can do a lot because they don't have to recognize and understand everything that a user might ask for. Mm-hmm. They're looking at very specific tasks, specific domains, and that's a task that you can do with a lot you can start with a lot less data and build on from there when you as you get more data, but um I think there's a lot of room for those types of of situations. So Kathy, this has been terrific. Uh if, if listeners want to find you and uh and and read what you're writing and and uh uh, you know, get in touch, where should they look? Um, yeah, so I'm working on a book for O'Reilly called Designing Voice User Interfaces. Um, you can get the first two chapters online right now at O'Reilly, and the full book should hopefully be out by the end of the year. Um, in addition, um, I'm on Twitter at cpearl42, uh, where I like to link to interesting articles about current VUI systems out there. And I'll also be speaking at the upcoming um, Bot Day on October 19th. Terrific. We're really looking forward to having you at Bot Day. You can, you can find uh, Bot Day, by the way, at O'Reilly.com slash bots for more information. Kathy is going to be our, our main speaker on, um, on user experience design for bots. Uh, it's a big topic that everyone really needs to understand um, people at every level. So, so we're really excited to have you there. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks so much, Kathy. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Okay, let's go to bot of the week. All right. Beat you have a bot this week. Yeah, so I test I I periodically test out uh chatbots. Basically I test out every bot that comes out every day and just give it a, <laughs> kick the tires a little bit. And there's a bot 
that I tried uh, a few weeks back, uh, and I had kind of an interesting interaction um, and took a few screenshots. So I thought it would be fun to do actually a dramatic reading of that, that interaction. It's, uh, it's probably the best way to convey what's happening over, over a podcast. And so the bot that I was thinking of uh, this time is Sensei, uh, which is a chat bot for getting help with any task, right? So I, I guess I'd put it in this like question answering bot space. Um, there's a few apps like Jelly and um, there was Aardvark back in the day. And so in there was spe- Cha-Cha, right? Is Cha-Cha still around? I don't know if cha Yeah, I don't know if they're even still around. But yeah, so the, over the years, there's been many attempts at, uh, in this case, uh, an anonymous Q&A type system. So with Aardvark, that was over Google Chat. And mm-hmm. you would be connected semi-anonymously. I think it was someone somewhat in your network with an expert who can answer a question. And so I remember a lot of the questions on that one, like a lot of people would ask, what's the meaning of life? And it would, you know, somebody w- would snarkily give you a reply 42. And it was totally mm-hmm. human to human in that case, right? Um, mm-hmm. With Sensei, it wasn't clear to me, you know, based on the announcement, you know, whether it was a person or whether it was a bot. Um, so I just started trying it out. Um, and the other thing that was interesting with this one is that I installed, the, I think they pr- have it for multiple platforms, but I, I tried the Sensei Slack bot. And so without, with only the context on their website, I kind of assumed that it was um, a bot within my Slack team where I could ask my coworkers questions, but it actually was not the case. It actually took me out of my work Slack, which I didn't realize was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that uh, setup, maybe we should get into uh, the interaction. Uh, so, so you sign up for Sensei, you're in Slack. Sensei asks you a bunch of onboarding questions, stuff like, uh, you know, what, what's your expertise and, and what do you know about? Yeah. And so I signed up uh, for this bot under the persona of Stringer Bell from The Wire. Uh, so <laughs> it asks kind of standard onboarding questions. And so this is kind of like kind of an ask an expert bot. And so it asks you... Uh, your expertise as well. Um, and so I said things like moving product, people management, things like that, things mm-hmm. Stringer Bell would do on the wire. Um, so I filled in basically a bunch of profile information via the chat interface and told it you know, where, where I was and what my company does and stuff like that. And then it moved, it gave me a little context on you can give Sensei coins to people who chat with you as a way of saying thanks. So there's some like virtual currency that you can reward people who help you. And so it's it it's starting to reveal to me that I'm actually going to be talking to a person via the bot. And mm-hmm. then it quickly goes into, I, I think the two main ability, uh, two main interactions are you can say in all caps that you know something. So I said, I know mm-hmm. wiretaps. And then, <laughs> and then it the the thing that really kicks off this this interaction is okay try saying something you need like for example i need ideas for fun team building exercises so since i'm stringer bell who was uh a businessman dabbling in the drug trade i guess or a drug dealer uh-huh. dabbling in business um in the wire <laughs> i said that uh i need ways to beat a police entrapment case and then that kicks off this interaction where sensei says all right hold on a minute and then i i kind of am i i'm in a pause mode for a few minutes while they find someone to answer now we'll begin the the uh dialogue i'll be reading the the lines from uh from the anonymous 
expert that Sensei connects Pete to, and Pete will be reading the lines uh, of himself as Stringer Bell. A chat with a human has started. You said, need ways to beat a police entrapment case. Your Sensei says, how can I help? Hey, I need to know about how to beat a police entrapment case. How can I help you? I need to know about how to beat a police entrapment case. Hello? What's the charge? Sorry, just getting home. What are the circumstances? Drug possession. Hire Johnny Cochran. Hey, I'm in real trouble here. I was arrested at the Lowe's Atlanta Hotel where I was staying as a guest. Anyone will tell you, lawyer up. That's what you need to do. I have a lawyer, but I don't trust him. Get another lawyer. I can't. He's on retainer by my boss. This is our work slack. Are you a lawyer? Uh, I'm in law school. What law school? But I have cops that are family. Brooklyn Law School. How did you get on Sensei? I was invited to Sensei by an unknown person. My friends know I give advice. I'm Sensei. Uh, you were invited over SMS? I'm talking from Slack. Yeah, from SMS. All right, and from here, the, um, the dialogue goes quiet. The human who is behind the Sensei uh, bot doesn't say anything. Pete doesn't say anything. Ten minutes later, um, the Sensei bot comes back in and says, hey, are you still there? Offers to close the conversation and then asks uh, Pete to rate the quality of the conversation. And that's the end of the dramatic reading of Sensei. So let's talk about it for a sec. You you started out by kind of um, loading up the bot with a bit of a knowledge base. You said, um, you know, some things that you're good at, uh, some things that you know things about, uh, and then you asked for help. Presumably, Sensei could contact you uh, if someone says, I need help uh, moving product. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was obviously jokingly, I start. I did. I had no intention of reading this on a podcast when I had the interaction. Uh <laughs> Full, full disclosure here, this is just me. Like we talked about before, people will mess around with bots in their first interaction, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of push the limits of it and see what it did when I gave. The, I, I think the answers I gave, I said, you know, uh, people management, things like that. They weren't totally crazy mm -hmm. uh, answers. <laughs> um, but then obviously the question I asked was 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 totally trolling uh, right, the bot. Right. And I, the thing that was unexpected for me was I didn't, I thought it was going to connect me to someone else on my Slack team. And so I thought I was going to be trolling oh. someone else on my Slack team. Um, and it actually connected me to this random uh, law student in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, who whose um, credibility is based in part on the fact that he has cops in his family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> so I think two things that were interesting there, we've talked about bots not being sensitive, right, earlier uh, uh, when we talked to Kathy. Um, uh -huh. And... In this case, it's a human. <laughs> like, if I really did have a police entrapment case, this, you know, this, this would, uh, yeah, this would have been a pretty upsetting, yeah. uh, person to ask for advice. Yeah. He just said, get a lawyer. Uh, well, you don't like your lawyer, get a different lawyer. I don't know what to tell you. Even said, hire Johnny Cochran. Yeah. yeah. Give me a break. So he, he was, he was trolling right back. Right. And this, this is, uh, right. This is right. Awesome. And so I don't know. I, I think the, the thing that was interesting about this was, I felt like there was a good amount of latency in getting the initial response. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe it wasn't really clear what what I what to expect when I first started, um, mm -hmm. and and so in this case, I think it, the bot could probably do a little better um, setting the expectation of who I would be talking to. 
Um, okay. And it also wasn't clear, is this supposed to be anonymous or not? And, it, and so it was kind of a strange mm-hmm. interaction, I thought, in terms of getting advice. Yeah, it is. And and this is a problem with, uh, you know, two-sided marketplaces, which, which Sensei is trying to put together here. Um, how to ensure that the service provider is uh, is a good service provider is a, is a tough problem. It's one that, you know, Uber has had to work really hard on. Um, it's especially hard when, as in this case, you kind of have the sense that they are hitting up all of their users to also become experts in the network. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not clear on what pretense uh, you're brought in to join it. But, you know, presumably you, having said that you're good at moving product, might you know, be paired randomly at some inconvenient time of day with uh, with someone who says that they need help with something related to moving. Mm-hmm. And it, I, th- I think it's OK. I think um, I think th- those are things that can be worked around. I think the thing that at least in the case of this bot can be a bit strange is like you have to get the user in the habit of now asking this bot. But it's not really a bot. You're asking a human mediated by a bot. And so I think mm-hmm. this pattern, this is this is one I've thought about quite a bit. And I, I think that there's a bunch of human hurdles to get around. It's unusual mm-hmm. for me to ask a bot for advice, A, mm-hmm. and do it via some chat window. And now I'm also going to ask a stranger via that bot uh, for advice. It's it's It might be a, a little bit too much of a leap. Uh, right now. Right, right. There's uh, something else interesting here, which is that, you know, I think uh, human in the loop is an important uh, concept in bots that, you know, the bot experience for your user might go sort of fluidly back and forth between an AI bot and a human. Uh, and and maybe there are humans kind of like parsing the information in the back end somehow. Maybe you're actually moving back and forth between a bot and a human. In this case, it's pretty explicit. Sensei says, you know, a chat with a human has started. And then, mm-hmm. and then it prompts your human counterpart with your last question, and then the bot steps back. And then at the end of the conversation, the bot is is pretty explicit about stepping back in. Yeah. So I, I applaud their transparency. That's that's obviously really important, and and it's the only way to control their experience mm-hmm. too. Because as with this guy, you know, you might have kind of a negative experience with the random human you're connected to, mm-hmm. uh, and the you know the platform wants to step back and not necessarily take responsibility for that. Yeah. So I I actually I, I liked some things about this and I thought I mean it was you know kind of an engaging interaction kind of a fun conversation I think it's interesting that they I asked him how he got on the app and what he was talking over and he was talking over a different platform over uh, he said he was invited via SMS um, uh-huh. and so this feels like uh, very much like a marketplace play or a social network mm-hmm. play um, mm-hmm. and. I think, you know, it may be that this could work really well on Facebook Messenger or something. Um, yeah. And I think that this will really kick the tires on uh, the low friction uh, platforms, bot platforms. Definitely, definitely. It reminds me a lot of Quora. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by, by interacting with Sensei, you, Pete, earned these Sensei coins that you can give to people you chat with. And, and presumably they're setting up kind of a market in, uh, in these ambiguous... Uh, company credits mm-hmm. and at some point you might be able to buy the credits and then spend them to uh you know to get high value advice from a highly rated advice giver or get you know immediate feedback on something you would other otherwise have to wait on yeah and and so i think uh the other thing for there's i think there's several players and we could probably link to a few of them um uh in the notes uh there's several people going after this kind of like um ask to answer uh bot type play and mm-hmm. You know, the th- other thing that comes to mind is like the latency. 
So there's so many things mm -hmm. that will kill your your app uh, in this kind of scenario. And so I think the players that will do really well here will be the ones that take into account the quality of the answers, the reputation of the answer, and the speed, the late the latency to get a response. Right, right, right. This is something that, of course, uh, you know, generally the speed is going to improve as more people join the platform. Uh, you look at like Uber wait times, mm -hmm. which a, f a few years ago might have been seven to 10 minutes in a lot of cities and are now like two minutes in San Francisco. You just get enough people on the platform and there's always someone available. But in this case, high quality is much more important than it is for Uber. With a ride sharing service, there's kind of a binary, you know, experience. Is it safe and pleasant and expeditious or is it like really bad for some reason? Yeah. With with advice, you know, this is kind of a nuanced thing. And and legal advice is is this really dodgy area where um, you know, there there are all sorts of laws and kind of professional standards around whether you're even able to give someone legal advice uh, as a lawyer. So it's 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 very tricky and and the quality of response is much more nuanced than it is for a lot of other two-sided marketplaces. Yeah. And I think the jury is out on whether this is really a good fit for a bot because mm -hmm. I think the the idea so much of what we just talked about is really about a social system and reputation and identity. Um, and they are obscuring that behind a kind of faceless bot that is a mm -hmm. mediator. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little skeptical that, that, uh, that's the right play. Why maybe this should just be an app in and of itself and you're connected mm -hmm. person to person, more like an Airbnb or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Where, where you make it even clearer, you know, where the break point is between the platform talking to you and, and your human counterpart. Cool. I, I, I think it's a really interesting, uh, interesting bot and I'll, I'd love to keep an eye on it. Um, you know, I'm sure it's going to improve and. It's it's cool to see one that uh, you know that switches back and forth like this between bot and human. It's a really interesting model. Okay, well we'll keep keep an eye on Sensei. All right, Pete, it's been a pleasure as always. And uh, if listeners would like to learn more about bots, of course you ought to come to O'Reilly Bot Day. That's October nineteenth in San Francisco. For more information on that, visit o'reilly.com/bots. And remember to subscribe to the. O'Reilly Bots podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever it is that you like listening to podcasts. And uh, if you enjoy it, only if you enjoy it, um, go ahead and, and, and give us a rating, if you don't mind, on one of those platforms too. So come to O'Reilly Bot Day, O'Reilly.com slash bots. Thanks so much, Pete. Talk to you soon. See ya. We'll have Pete Skamarok back on for our next episode. Be sure to check out O'Reilly Bot Day on October 19th in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com slash bots for more information, or just Google O'Reilly Bot Day. I'm John Bruner with O'Reilly Bots. O'Reilly.